The Energy Gang is brought to you by Dandelion Energy, the leading home geothermal company. Through a combination of better technology and better financing, Dandelion is making it easier for homeowners to get geothermal. Customers who switch to geothermal heating save on average $2,250 per year. Visit dandelionenergy.com slash GTM to see if your home qualifies. We're also brought to you by Wonder Capital. Wonder Capital was recently named the leading commercial solar financier by Green Tech Media and Wood Mackenzie Power and Renewables. Wonder changed the game for commercial solar, and now it's doing the same for community solar. Find out more at wondercapital.com slash GTM. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions on the fast-changing world of energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey, a contributing editor with Green Tech Media in Boston. This week, deal or no deal? The Green New Deal is out, and we're suddenly having a national conversation about climate change here in the U.S. It's a messy and somewhat disgusting conversation playing out on cable news, Twitter, and the polarized corners of the web. But it's also produced some thoughtful journalism, and it's injecting some early drama into the presidential primaries. We'll tell you what's in it, assess the reactions, and look at whether it'll amount to anything. Also, is the democratic socialist agenda antithetical to the creating climate wealth mantra that we talk about on this podcast. Then, recycling is in crisis. You're probably recycling wrong. China is cracking down, and your city is probably losing money. We'll ask how to address the problem. Finally, lab-grown meat and meat alternatives are facing a backlash from, who else? The meat industry. Bills are getting introduced in states around the country to prevent companies from using the word meat on packaging. Could it set things back just as these products are gaining traction? My co-hosts, Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shah, are with me from Washington, D.C. Catherine is the chair of 38 North Solutions. Good morning. Good morning and happy Valentine's Day. Today we are recording on the day for all sweethearts. <laughs> you know, in our free electron section, we're going to talk about what we are obsessed with or what we're crushing on. I hope you have a good one. Yes, of course. You know how I wonk out. I crush on wonks. You do. <laughs> <laughs> Jigger is the president of Generate Capital over there chuckling in his uh, Bethesda, Maryland office. Hello, sir. How are you? Good. You know, that private equity firm that uh, bought the Sweetheart's Candy Company couldn't meet the deadline, so there's no Sweetheart Candies this Valentine's. That's true. That is uh, Neko, the Neko Company. Uh, it's about a mile and a half away from where I live. Wow. Currently. I, I, I pass by there all the time when I'm going to the supermarket. I love Neko wafers. I grew up, uh, I mean, they're basically like chalk. Um, they're colored chalk, but they have a special place in my heart because I would use them as roof shingles on gingerbread houses. <laughs> so <laughs> That's so brilliant. Yeah, I always thought like the only reason they exist was for Valentine's Day. Like there's no redeeming value otherwise, but I like the gingerbread house. Well, a private equity firm believes that there's value. So next year, folks, we'll have some updated sweethearts for you. And maybe we'll get some that are Green New Deal themed. Who knows? Uh, I wonder what they'd say. Uh, I, I, I love... Um, Mother Earth. Jobs for everyone? Yeah, right. <laughs> if you have a good idea for a Green New Deal or energy-themed sweetheart, send it to us on Twitter. Speaking of which, we asked our listeners for their feedback on Apple Podcasts. Give us a creative review, and you heeded the call. We really appreciate all the reviews that we got, but we have to pick just one. One listener who will get a free subscription to GTM Squared. 
And uh, we reviewed them all, and we chose who else but Tammy Bearden, who snuck in a review on the last day of the contest. Tammy, send me an email to postscriptaudio at gmail.com, and I am going to hook you up with a free subscription to GTM Squared. Um, One more thing. We have an upcoming live show at the MIT Energy Conference in Cambridge, Massachusetts on April 4th. The theme of the event, Tough Tech and the 2040 Grid. So we're still mapping out the show, but the conference is going to cover a bunch of relevant topics like electrification of everything, the VC environment for a wide range of tech, energy access, the future grid mix, and where nuclear is headed. Something for everyone. So you can go to the link in our show notes and get a 10% discount for your ticket at the MIT Energy Conference April 4th and 5th. Come see us on April 4th. Okay. For the last week, we've all been consumed by the Green New Deal, a climate change resolution put forward by New York Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Massachusetts Senator Ed Markey. It calls for massive wartime government investments to address the threat of climate change. The concept itself is not new. Variations have been proposed by the likes of Tom Friedman, the Green Party, Al Gore, environmental groups over the last decade. Uh, This latest version builds from those previous versions. And it's important to stress that this version of the Green New Deal is not a plan per se. It's simply a broadly worded resolution calling for Congress to address the threat of climate change. Um, It has an urgent call of action. Uh, It has a democratic socialist wish list in it. And we'll talk a little bit about that. And, And it's seen as a litmus test for democratic candidates. So it's less about specific legislation and more about messaging. Um, Catherine, let's talk about what this thing is. And then we'll talk about the debate about the contents. Judging by the reaction, you'd think it was this sweeping piece of legislation. If this is just a resolution, when Congress passes resolutions all the time, uh, and not a comprehensive plan, why is it getting so much attention? Yeah, so just to stress the fact that it's a resolution, in fact, when... Um, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said he wanted to take it to a vote. He couldn't do it in its current format um, because he would have to bypass the committee process. It it would have to go through committee, Environment and Public Works, most likely, um, with Chairman Barrasso from Wyoming, who's already said that this um, will be the end of ice cream and beef. Um, And he circumvented that, but Mitch McConnell had to then pull the language out which, which, like you said, is not very specific on you know execution, on legislative language and execution, and put it into his own resolution, which he is now introducing, circumventing all of that process. And he'll take it to a vote within three legislative days. And next week is a recess, so it would be the following week that he would take it up for a vote. And first, you have to do a motion to proceed, which requires 60 votes, which it's probably not going to, of course, it's not going to get that. So um, he wants people to go on the record. Do you agree with this or don't you? And his talking points is that this is socialist idea and, you know, we want to get everybody out there on the record. But if you step back and look at what this really is, as a resolution, what it does is it says, okay, it sets forth whereas. So why would you do something like this? What's the reason for having a resolution? And they cite the IPCC report that we have talked about, about keeping global warming um you know, below two degrees, and we have about 12 years to really act on it. They talk about income inequality, wage stagnation, climate disproportionately affecting certain communities. So they they have all these reasons of why they're doing it. And then they say, all right, then what are we going to do? We're resolving to do what? And so then they set forward some very broad goals, not super specific, but 
you know, they look at the power sector, 100% of power from clean, renewable, zero emission energy sources. To me, that's not specific. That opens it up to anything that's zero emission. They talk about upgrading building sector clean manufacturing growth, working with farmers and ranchers on the ag sector, transforming the transportation sector, looking at public health issues, carbon storage, ecosystem health. I mean, they really cover the waterfront on what are all the things that we need to address if you're really going to look at climate change in a very holistic manner. And then at the very end, what they do is they list many progressive ideas that are not necessarily related to climate, but that are going to be talking points for the democratic platform, high quality healthcare, affordable, safe housing, economic security, and clean water, air, healthy food, etc. So they, they actually start with it very focused on climate and then really broaden it at the end to look at the full economy. I want to start at an even more fundamental level here and go back to what a resolution actually is. So is this a a way to test Democratic candidates? You know, if if Democrats don't want Democrats on the record about this, then why introduce it in the first place? Like, why even care that Mitch McConnell wants to force a vote on this? Like, what is a resolution in the first place. That's I guess that's important for people to understand because so many people are paying attention to this, including us, partially because it's getting so much reaction. But uh, it feels like the reaction is so big compared to what a resolution actually does. Well, part of the reason for that is because we are entering into the 2020 presidential election season and um, Senator Warren, Senator Harris, Senator Gillibrand, Senator Klobuchar, Senator Sanders, Senator Booker, all of whom either are announced or expected to announce their candidacy, have all come out in support of this. So it has become then an election topic. There are also certainly the polling shows there's like 80% support for doing something across the board. And um, I think that what you do with the resolution is you put forward an issue and it's a messaging um document. And yet, in this particular instance, it becomes much more of a focus for 2020. And because climate is actually a huge, huge crisis, and people care about it, this gets people on record as to like, do you actually believe we need to do something? So let's talk a little bit about what we like about it, and what we dislike about it. Um, Jigger, over to you. What are the elements of this plan that you like? Well, I think I like everything about it, right? I don't think there's anything I don't like about it. I mean, first of all, it's technology agnostic. So all it is is basically just a jumble of words. The whole point of it is political, right? This has no policy implications whatsoever. And I think it's important that we recognize that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on her appearance at Meet the Press fully acknowledged that it had no policy implications whatsoever, right? What she was basically saying, which I agree with, is that the Democratic Party was largely lost after Hillary Clinton. They haven't actually figured out what they're for. And she's actually running the Democratic Party today. When you think about what it is that she's doing, she is forcing every presidential candidate on the record to say they support a Green New Deal. If you were to talk to Bill Clinton acolytes and said, do you think we should guarantee a job for everybody? They would say no, right? If you if you were to ask Bill Clinton acolytes, like, should we actually figure out a way to do Medicare for all? 
Should we figure out how to like deal with housing? Should we figure out how to deal with climate change at the level and scale required? Everyone would say no, right? Because they would say we're closet capitalists. In fact, Nancy Pelosi at a recent fundraiser said, I'm wishy-washy on the Green New Deal because I'm a capitalist. But I actually don't think that it precludes any of those market-driven capitalism-based mechanisms. Yeah, it's so broad that it includes everything. It's what it's a mirror of whatever you want it to be today. But what it is, is that it's very obvious to people who look at electoral politics that the Democratic Party at this point, for demographic reasons or other, has roughly 60% of the vote nationwide. The reason that they lose all the time is that the vast majority of those people on the edge don't vote, right? They don't get a turnout of young people and all this other stuff. And so the reason everyone's talking about a Green New Deal, I was reading Jerry Taylor's work in Nissacon Center and then Nick Gillespie's work over at Reason, both very sort of libertarian-leaning places. They're scared out of their mind about this because they believe the Democrats finally have something that will resonate with its electorate. So should we take this seriously as a legislative document then, Catherine? Does it have a pathway or is it what Jigger's describing, which is purely a way to get the party on record about the urgency of climate change and then all these other far left agenda items that are packed into it? So the House resolution has been referred to numerous committees of jurisdiction, which means what those committees will do, well, they will take this and parse those pieces that are related to their committee and then talk about what would be a legislation that you would then enact or a, you know offer forward for this. So energy and commerce that does energy policy, science committee that looks at research programs, education and labor because of the labor aspect, transportation and infrastructure because both transportation and infrastructure are huge pieces of this proposal, agriculture committee, natural resources, foreign affairs, financial services, judiciary, um, because of a lot of the social justice issues, ways and means, oversight, which is the tax writing committee. So it touches every single major committee of jurisdiction. And what that means is that any of those committees, depending on what their committee is charged with doing, could look at market mechanisms, it could look at tax credits, grants, public-private partnerships, regulation, bonds, loan guarantees. They could look at any anything they want to in a way to move forward on some specific piece of this. So you would have to kind of pull it apart, figure out like, what does this actually mean? Because as Jigger says, it's very broad, but it doesn't preclude all these really interesting mechanisms to get things done. And so I think what will happen is while the select committee on the climate crisis, we'll be talking about kind of overarching, what does this mean and how are we going to talk about it? Each of these committees can put forward different pieces of legislation and actually talk about what are some solutions. Okay, so one of the bigger criticisms of this resolution then is that it takes all these progressive policies like healthcare for all, improved wages, new trade policy to stop jobs from going overseas, union strengthening, guaranteeing a job for everyone. And it packs this into the plan. And so a lot of the criticism really involves the pathway for this plan, assuming you just shove all this into one kind of legislative agenda. And what you're saying is that, no, this actually filters its way through uh, the legislative diaspora, and you can start, a pe- start to piece together some of these priorities. It's not like some 
grandiose plan is going to come together and smash all these things together. It's more uh, of an influential document on some of the priorities within different committees. Is that is that the right way to look at it? Yeah, except I would not call it a diaspora. I would call it a process. <laughs> so, I mean, it really is like different committees have different different jurisdictions. And that's important because people are chosen for that committee because of their interest and their ability to serve on that committee and to really dig into issues. And that's, that's a really important thing to do. The big problem for me was the way it was rolled out with this FAQ and this like free flowing lack of understanding. It looked like somebody had been, done a brainstorming stream of consciousness and that somehow got on the website. Yeah, and let, that let me freeze I think was there. the biggest problem. Oh, yeah, sorry. let me freeze you there and ask you like, okay, what happened? Because the this this frequently asked questions page came out authored by AOC and it was absolutely a stream of consciousness document uh, according to her team it wasn't supposed to be out someone accidentally posted it uh, what kind of ruckus did that cause and what was the reasoning behind putting that you know half-baked document out so I don't know what the reasoning was um, I think maybe somebody thought oh let's get something up quickly but they had not even proofread it it basically provided talking points for the Republicans to come out and make fun of it. And that is the problem. It provided the larger document was amorphous enough that, yeah, you could come up with some, you know, like, oh, it seems a socialist document. But these these said things like, we're not going to be able to get rid of cow farts altogether or the airline industry. And none of those things were addressed in the bigger resolution. These were things that somebody was just kind of, you know, streaming on, writing about. It had not been vetted. They certainly did not understand how a carbon tax would work and tried to explain it. They also picked technologies, which was a big mistake because why would you want to all of a sudden, you know, alienate people that you should be bringing into the tent rather than locking out? So that was the biggest mistake to me. It wasn't the actual resolution. It was the way they um, put together this thing on, on the website, which just gave anybody who had a reason to hate uh, more reason and more talking points. Jigger, what did you think about that blunder? Did it impact the rollout at all uh, in, a, in a negative way? And um, how much did it sort of push perception in the press about this plan? It turned out to be a non-event. I mean, you know, what ended up happening, look, remember that there's no legislation that will be passed in the next two years around the Green New Deal, right? So that's that wasn't the point of the Green New Deal, right? The point of it is to create a select committee that will actually collect all these ideas. And we got our, you know, buddy Sean Caston on that committee, which is great. And, you know, and they're going to collect great ideas, right? And even if the federal government never passes anything, right, the states and the, you know, the universities and others that signed the We Are Still In pledge could read a lot of that documentation and figure out what they can implement there. The entire process behind the Green New Deal is about electing people that are going to pass something in the 2020 election, right? Primarying, you know, conservative Democrats who basically probably wouldn't be with the Green New Deal and promoting, you know, other folks that would, right? That's the entire point of this. And I think Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was very clear on Meet the Press that that was her point, right? Was that in 2020, if the Democrats have 60 votes in the Senate, they'll go for something bold. If they have 51 votes in the Senate, they'll go for something less bold, right? But, but the details of the Green New Deal are completely irrelevant except to energize the base and get them to vote. But... 
I also think, Jigger, that it's going to do something else important. And while there are a lot of Republicans that are making fun of it right now, it is actually going to force them to think about climate change and to have a plan. There is no GOP plan out right now to address climate change. And I think this is going to force them to at least talk about it. And then once you have everybody talking about it, then you can come together on something that will actually pass. Well, Republicans have had a, a lot of fun making fun of this deal. But are they underestimating the politics here? The polling shows that if you take out the Green New Deal from party affiliation, Republicans and Democrats overwhelmingly support it. I think it has 90 percent. According to polling from Yale and George Mason University from December, it has 90 percent support among Democrats and 64 percent support from Republicans if you don't affiliate it with the Democratic Party. That's crazy. Uh, the, the support for among millennials for many of the other sort of democratic socialist priorities within this is extremely high. You know, polling, uh, c- polling consistently shows that. So uh, could Republicans overplay their hand here? I know we're really not talking about anything getting established for a couple of years, but like, are they underestimating uh, how powerful this could be even for Republican voters if messaged in the right way? Yeah, it's not about Republicans overplaying their hand. It's about the fact that shit's getting real. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are there are like glaciers that are melting in the center that they didn't notice and that if the entire glacier melts, we're going to get 10 feet of sea level rise in 10 years. Right? There's entire beachfront property areas that are going to be underwater soon. Miami might have skyscrapers start falling out of the sky cuz they're sitting on limestone. I just think that in general for those of us who have small kids, This is really, really emotional, right? We're trying to figure out what are our kids going to do in 2050? And how do we even prepare them for the fact that we didn't do anything when we were younger because we were trying to like talk about all the small ball crap between Republicans and Democrats? Well, there's another piece of it that I think is really important that we talked about a little bit up front, which is the social justice component and environmental justice piece. So yeah, there are there are a lot of people in this country that have been left behind by new technology. A lot of those former coal miners and coal workers that are just that don't have jobs. And so I think what another piece that this tries to address is how do we bring everybody along? And that is so important. It's not just people on coastline. It's not just people who are affected by extreme weather and and climate events, but really people who are impacted by income disparity and don't see a pathway to the future for them. And I think it's really important for those of us in the clean energy sector to step up and make sure that we provide them a pathway. Now, does the language in the way it's structured by putting all these um, left priorities in with the climate change package and and really focus on mostly government involvement, is that antithetical to the creating climate wealth mantra, which is really all about unleashing the private sector? You've been talking about this for years, Jigger. You wrote a book about it. How does this square with your vision for creating climate wealth? Well, look, I do believe that the government makes bad decisions when it picks winners and losers, right? And we've had this conversation a lot. We have to pass state laws that require 100%, you know, zero energy, right? Because there's a lot of people out there who have incumbent 
technologies that have that have been deployed, whether it's natural gas power plants or coal power plants, that want to run them for another 15 years. They don't want to shut them down early, right? They need legislation and government involvement to shut them down early, right? And that, and so, I, like, I think I can believe in both things, right? Which is on the one hand, genuinely trying to figure out how capitalism does a better job of putting forward tools by which this revolution occurs, and then separately believing that we're not going to get to the 100% goal or 80% goal of carbon emissions reductions without heavy government involvement. Now, the last piece of this is the energy wonkery. And before the official resolution was released, we and many others debated the goals that were outlined by proponents of the Green New Deal. Should it be 100% renewable energy? What should the role of carbon capture and nuclear be? Many of the controversial issues that we often debate were avoided in this resolution. They specifically say we want 100% electricity met with renewable or zero emission energy sources. So that leaves the door open for nuclear or at least avoids debate about the role of other technologies beyond renewables. Um, they let's see what else do they avoid? Oh, well, they they the I think the progressive left is increasingly skeptical of carbon pricing, and they left open the possibility of using market based mechanisms to uh, complement the suite of policies outlined in the resolution. So that's a potential fight as well over a carbon price or cap and trade that was avoided. Anything else? I mean, other things that are either potentially controversial or that are not controversial because the resolution was written in a certain way? I do think there are hard-to-abate sectors like ag and heavy-duty transportation, a lot manufacturing, that it's going to take a lot of work to to come up with good climate mitigation solutions for those. So I'm glad that they included them because they were very holistic in the way they looked at it. But I think those are those are more gnarly than, you know, renewables because we have we have mechanisms, proven mechanisms already to deploy renewables. So let's just ramp those back up and get going on those. But there are other there are other sectors that are a little more difficult. Yeah, I thought that the part that really seemed missing to me here is uh, transit related development, urban sprawl. Like, I mean, it is very obvious to all of us who've studied this that the key to this whole thing is going to be figuring out how you actually deal with urban land use and planning. Um, you know, people can't, you can't solve transportation emissions just by converting everything to electric vehicles. You actually need to have less vehicles. You need to have more density. You have to, you know, get people to use public transit. You've got to figure out how to get to a smarter system. Um, and I thought that that was sort of lacking in the in the document. Last question. If this is more of a political messaging document and a way to rally people to vote and to get people energized, how does this influence the presidential election, Catherine? Yeah, I think every single candidate is going to be asked uh, if they're for a Green New Deal or what their plan is for climate change. And I actually think beyond the presidential ticket, it'll it'll trickle down into House and Senate races that'll be coming up in 2020 as well. And I and gubernatorial races, I think it, I think it has raised the issue. Um, and this isn't the only thing that's raised the issue. The issue has been in the air for a while. It's just now 
got a few um, folks that are willing to really talk about it more. Um, so the IPCC report certainly raised the issue as well. But I think everybody's going to be asked about it, and they'll have to have an answer. Um, so we'll we'll see a range of views on that. Some of them will will focus on different pieces of it. Maybe some will focus on the labor piece more than the technology piece. I would expect a lot of Republicans to talk about innovation, which is what they like to talk about, um, and infrastructure. But you'll see you'll see a range, but everybody will be asked. This certainly is a Tea Party moment. The millennial activists from the Sunrise Movement and other organizations that forced people to be talking about this issue certainly are having a, a wide-ranging influence on uh, presidential politics, not congressional politics. So if anything, multiple people have said this, and I definitely agree, whatever you think about this plan, it is certainly getting people talking about climate change in a way that we haven't for a long time. Coming up, why that jug you're recycling is part of a complicated and broken global waste system. First, though, support for this podcast comes from Dandelion Energy, the leading home geothermal company. Did you know that just five feet below the surface of your home, the temperature of the earth is warm enough to provide you with heating in the winter? I bet a lot of you did know that. But, you know, if you didn't, you should be checking out Home Geothermal Energy. Because today's sponsor, Dandelion Energy, uses cutting-edge geothermal technology to harness that warm temperature in the earth to safely and reliably heat your home. Homeowners who make the switch to geothermal heating save on average $2,250 per year. So go visit dandelionenergy.com slash GTM to see if your home qualifies for geothermal heating. Dandelion Energy, a better way to heat your home. Also, are you a developer with a community solar project that needs financing? Are you frustrated by those banks with their slow processes and their inflexible offerings? Well, Wonder Capital is here to help. Wonder has launched a progressive new community solar offering dedicated to supporting projects in ways that other lenders just cannot. Go to wondercapital.com slash GTM, Wonder with a U, to submit your community solar projects today. Let's turn now to another global crisis, one that is probably hitting your local government. We are facing a recycling crisis. Last year, China, which once bought 60% of plastic waste from developed countries like the U.S., decided it was not going to be the dumping ground for dirty recyclables. So it created really tough standards, and suddenly... Handlers had to scramble to find somewhere that would take their recycling products. The new standards had an immediate impact on cities around the U.S., which is the biggest supplier of paper and plastics to China, or was, I should say. Turns out recycling isn't free, particularly when you do it with environmental and health standards in mind. Uh, China really just needed to clean itself up when it came to recycling. So these stringent new standards mean China is rejecting way more of our recyclables because, you know, Americans are really terrible at recycling. And now cities are hiring more people and buying more sorting equipment to pick out only the premium stuff. And it's costing many cities tens or hundreds of millions of dollars, money they probably don't have. So what is the solution? Catherine, first to China. What is what role does China play in this complicated global recycling market, and why did it make these changes? Yeah, so to keep in mind, recycling in the U.S. is a hundred billion dollar industry. There are five hundred thousand people that are employed in that industry. We export export about a third of our recyclables, and we recycle about thirty four percent of all of our waste. We export about a third of those, and fifty percent of that goes to China. So. 
Whereas China used to accept like 30 to 40% of all of our stuff, paper, plastic, metal, they've said, all right, they put this policy in place called the national sword policy that says, okay, you have to be cleaner. Don't just send us your trash. Because a lot of it was like 14% in recycling is actually just trash. So it has to be a half a percent or less contamination, which is really, really tough to get at. Impossible for cities in the U.S. I mean, people suck at recycling, so that is a ludicrously low number. Yeah. Think about the plastic peanut butter jars. You're never going to get those clean. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I throw those away. Um, But you also think about just the process. Like, all this stuff goes under these enormous shipping containers. If if it's plastic, most of that is just air. And all those shipping containers, which, by the way, it's like putting 50 million cars on the road for every shipping container, have to be go from California all the way to China and then back and forth all these you know, so there's this enormous amount of environmental destruction that happens in trying to recycle stuff that's basically air so there are a lot of reasons that we need to change the system and the way we do this and of course China's kind of forcing our hand on this but we probably need to come up with some alternatives Jigger what's the negative impact firstly to localities around the U.S. This is a very problematic because now they're having to invest in a lot more manpower and equipment to recycle better. How much of a problem is this? It's a huge problem, right? I mean, we used to just take the garbage, not really recycling, but garbage that we had, called it recycling, stuck it in shipping containers and sent it to China. China now wants a certain level of quality uh, that we can't achieve, right? And so now people have to rethink everything. We've actually seen a lot of business plans within Generate Capital that we're looking at. There's been a lot of innovations in this area that just haven't been deployed around recycling e-waste, recycling uh, plastics, turning them back into oil. There's lots of different ways to do this. But you know, fundamentally, you know, I think where this is going is people are recognizing that recycling itself is a myth and that recycling itself doesn't actually work. And what we need to move to is, you know, extended producer responsibility, which is what they do in Europe. Yeah, and it totally depends on the material. So, you know, they're, they're gonna, we need to come up with alternatives to the way we manufacture containers and, you know, how we, how we have products that are either recyclable or reusable. But there is a whole piece of the recycling industry that is about precious materials, precious metals, critical minerals, that is critical to making sure that, you know, technology that we're producing now, the wealth that's that's built into that comes back through the system in a more circular way. So there are a lot of pieces to the recycling industry that have kind of different life cycles and different abilities to be circular, certainly on the stuff that's much lower value, like plastics and papers, we need to figure out some better ways to on the front end. Well, and the important thing is that we already have figured out how to do it better, right? The recycling industry as a whole was basically a way to push off extended producer responsibility that was coming out in the 1970s and 80s and flourished in Europe. And the American Chemical Council said, hey, we should do recycling instead because that puts the burden on individuals. I think the notion that individuals are to blame because everyone's not meticulously sorting their garbage or whatever is ridiculous. Um, There are lots of ways to use technology to sort garbage and to get value back out of garbage, but it requires a level of government regulation and sorting and whatnot that the U.S. has heretofore not pursued. And I think that cities and states around the country are finally realizing that 
burying all of this stuff under the ground is way more expensive than finally tackling uh, garbage like we should have in the 70s and 80s. So this is a pain point for cities that are now spending tens or hundreds of millions of dollars to figure out how to sort recycling better. But it sounds like mid, medium or long term, this could be a very good thing because it improves health and safety and environmental standards in China, and it forces n- us to explore new technological and sorting models to improve our recycling and our waste handling. Do, does that, is, that, is that a reasonable take, Jigger? Well, I hope so, but it's going to require a tremendous amount of pushing, right? I mean, if you look at the Nordic countries, for instance, I mean, Sweden does so much recycling and so much uh, garbage disposal in healthy ways that it actually imports garbage from other countries to process because it's so good at processing it. So it's not like we don't know how to do this and we can't figure out how to do this. It's more of a political willpower, right? I mean, waste management today talks about net zero waste Walmart facilities and that kind of thing. But ultimately, the vast majority of its earnings come from tipping fees that they receive from landfills that they own. So you've got other companies like Rubicon, which are trying really hard to... um, help consult for companies and say, you should buy these kinds of cups and not those kinds of cups for your birthday parties because it costs you far different amounts to dispose of them later. And so you can reduce your overall garbage bill through your procurement processes. And I think as corporations and individuals start to have to pay for the actual costs of garbage, um, people are going to start thinking about, well, how best should we deal with this and figure out what technologies that already exist we should implement. So the last piece of this conversation revolves around individual behavior. I walk around my neighborhood and I see the junk that's in people's recycling bins. And it's clear that most people do not know how to recycle. And I wanted to bring this story up because I think it's really important for people to understand that a lot of their recycling is getting thrown out if they're not doing it properly. And my mantra now, knowing what I know about how strict standards are, if you're in doubt, probably throw it out. And so most places are taking really clean plastic bottles, jugs and jars and aluminum and tin cans and then non-greasy paper and cardboard. But like all the stuff you get from food takeout, you shouldn't put it, put in the, the recycling, anything with a little bit of grease on it even you shouldn't put in, um, any kind of soiled papers people just throw in the recycling. I mean, this single stream mindset has just forced everyone to think about recycling anything that's a paper or plastic product. And, you know, my mantra is probably throw it out if you don't know or if you can't clean it out well Well, enough. but like for most plastics and other types of recyclables, garbage trucks pick them up out of your blue bin and just stick them in the landfill. So I just like, I mean, this is why I don't believe in this stuff. My Eagle Scout project back in the 90s was to start a recycling program in my hometown in Sterling, Illinois. And so I've been doing this a long time. And I can tell you that like, What you think is happening is not happening. Airlines, for instance, don't recycle any of that crap that goes into the to the like clear bag that they pick up. They just incinerate it at JFK, right? And so they they recycle the uh, um, the cans, but the actual like coffee cups where they say, "Don't worry, we recycle these." No, they just incinerate at JFK and it goes into a CHP plant. And so I just think that part of this is just false advertising. They make you do all this work, all this sorting. And then the other side, the garbage company is like, well, 
we forgot. The driver went to the wrong place. We just ended up going to landfill anyway. <laughs> That's why things like bottle bills work really well, where you oh, where awesome. it creates value, right? Bottle bills. I mean, Michigan is 94% recycling of bottles. Oregon's at 90%. I mean, bottle bills work. You pay the extra 15 cents and then you get it back when you recycle. Well, am I supposed to just throw up my hands now and not recycle? Am I just perpetrating a global recycling fraud? Catherine, how should we feel about this? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Still do your bet. You know what annoys me more than anything with those food delivery things is that they bring you... 85 packages of wrapped plastic utensils. And if they're delivering to my home, I have utensils. Thank you very much. So, no, that's like so that's true. a bigger problem. <laughs> no, the biggest thing that people should do is talk to their city council member and say, why are you doing things the same way you did it in the 1970s? Do you not have a brain? Here are articles for you to read, right? These are things that you should do. And the vast majority of these city council members are just not up to speed, right? They're just like, well, you know, I've got 15 other things on my plate. I got elected because the school district issues or because I wanted a stop sign in my neighborhood or whatever crap, you know, like basically got them to run for city council and they don't know anything about garbage. Well, speaking of things to read, check out the piece from the Financial Times called Why the World's Recycling System Stopped Working by Leslie Hook and John Reed. That was published last fall. And it's a fantastic overview of how the global recycling system is broken. And we also relied on a lot of local stories and input from people who are facing these challenges on the municipal level. So check out that article. And then um, maybe you can educate yourself about uh, how, to, how to figure out your local recycling problems. Well, I guess we should end with our third topic. And... Um, we, you know, it's about the tension in states between incumbents and disruptors. We often highlight those tensions. Utilities and solar companies or auto dealers and Tesla come to mind. But there's a new fight emerging in states around the country. Whether the growing range of meat alternatives like the Impossible Burger or lab-grown meat can use the word meat. The beef industry doesn't want them to. And with meat alternatives hitting a billion and a half dollars in sales last year, the beef industry is trying to exercise its control before these products truly become mainstream foodstuffs. According to the New York Times, 12 states are now considering bills crafted alongside the beef industry that would ban use of the word meat for these products. Jigger, how do you read this legislative effort? Well, look, you know, it is obvious that that the meat you know, Beyond Meats and Impossible Burgers and all those guys are actually starting to make an impact. And so folks are getting scared. That's a good thing, right? I mean, when meat producers get scared, then you know that you're actually having an influence on their industry such that they're actually reacting. Otherwise, they would just swat you away like a fly. So that part gives me comfort. I think the broader conversation that we should have is whether the policy mechanisms that we're working with are actually working here. I, you know, I've met a lot of these entrepreneurs like Seth Goldman and Honesty or Gary Hirschberg from Stonyfield Farms or others. And a lot of these guys are real libertarians. And when you look at their impact on the industry, it's actually been very small. It's not like we've taken sugar out of our or sugary drinks or, you know, whether vegetarianism or veganism has actually ever gotten above sort of a 6% level in this country. Um, and that includes people who are like 
you know, uh, pescatarians and others who, you know, are sort of mild vegetarians. Um, you know, it, it's one of those things where I think a lot of the, the innovation in this industry makes us feel good. But on a macro basis, you know, we need to think about from a policy perspective as to whether we really are reducing the carbon emissions of our, you know, meat industry or whether we're actually getting people healthier food. Catherine, what do you think about these fights and what the beef industry is attempting to do here? Yeah, so they are worried because it is, like you said, a $1.5 billion industry grew 22% last year. So the milk industry, as an example, lost their fight about labeling. So they did not want... um, Almond milk, soy milk, oat milk. Have you ever tried to milk an almond, by the way? It's terrible. (laughs) Hard to do. Hard to do. All I'm saying is they're called milk, even though technically they're not milk. Okay. So the milk industry lost that. So there are all these things on the shelves that are called milk that people are purchasing and using. And it's it's a very competitive industry. So the beef industry does not want um, these products out there that say meat on the labels. And now some of those companies like Beyond Meat, Impossible Foods, those are plant-based, okay? So, and and so far, the state legislators have said, like, it's kind of obvious that these are not actually meat, that these are these are plant-based. And I, I so the labeling is part of the issue. The other issue is another piece of the industry that are lab-grown meats that are grown from cells of actual meat of cells of animals to produce meat in labs. And what the industry wants to do with that is to make sure that that industry is regulated and has the same oversight by the government that the meat industry has. So, you know, USDA, the Department of Agriculture, the Food and Drug Administration are kind of co-working on a framework to figure out how do we regulate for safety issues um, and labeling issues for cell lab-grown meats. Um, So they're kind of two different things. One is more of a PR-based effort, and the other is an actual safety and regulatory effort. Yeah, one is about clarity and messaging and uh, also protecting turf. And the other really reflects the concerns over the you know GMO labeling debate. Do we label these GMO foods Frankenfoods? And there is just a lot of sort of science fiction-oriented concern around lab-grown meats, which I think is different than the fake meat question. Now, going back to your question about impact jigger, would changing the the use of the word meat, do you think it would have a material impact on meat alternative products that are currently already on the shelves in supermarkets? Would this have a material impact to consumer demand? No, because I, I think that in general, you know, you're already at a point where people know about this product, right? I mean, Beyond Meat is sold in 11,000 grocery stores out of 17,000 total around the country. They have an IPO that they're, you know, that they filed and, you know, will go public this year. So they'll get a ton more uh, public, uh, you know, coverage from that. And so at some point, I think if they're required to take meat out of their name and create, you know, sort of beyond animal cruelty, well, then, you know, that might work. 
Yeah, and I would just point back to the emission issue. So animal agriculture is 14.5% of our greenhouse gas emissions. 65% of that is from the beef and dairy cattle industry. Beef being the highest. So for every kilogram of beef, you get 26.5 kilograms of CO2. So in Britain, they're trying to cut the sheep and cattle industry by 20 to 50%, which would take care of 58% of their ag, ag emissions. So, um, And it would provide about 7 million hectares, they say, back into forests from grasslands, another carbon sink. So it does have an enormous impact on carbon and on the environment, that entire industry, which is a whole nother issue. Well, this is why, you know, most carbon taxes, whether it's Alberta or other places, exempt the ag industry from carbon taxes, because it's a, you know, horrendous uh, sort of carbon emitter. I mean, I mean, even a water, right? So like, you know, I hate almond milk for lots of reasons. But, you know, they use a lot of water, it's 350 liters of water for every liter of almond milk. But dairy milk is 1300 liters of water uh, consumed for every liter of milk. And so the dairy industry is uses two and a half x times more water than almond milk. And so it's just one of those things where at some point, the numbers just get so large that you start to gloss over. And, you know, for all the people who are anti-fracking because of the water usage, how many people are anti-dairy milk because of the water usage? Mm, Yeah, that's a good point. So I don't think I've ever asked either of you on the podcast, have you tried the Impossible Burger? Do you like it? Yeah, so I did this. I knew we were going to talk about this, so I did a little experiment. First of all, I have been a vegetarian for 25 years, so I have zero craving for meat. Like meat, to so if somebody says, oh, I have something that's going to taste just like meat, I would be like, I, I don't want something that tastes just like meat. I'm totally fine. Thank <laughs> right. you. My husband, on the other hand, is an omnivore and loves meat and will eat almost any kind of meat. So what I did was I made... I. I got the Beyond Meat kielbasa, and I fried it up and made it into like a a whole dish for both of us. We tasted it, and I was like, "Eh, it's okay. And I said to him, so what do you think of this? And he said, it's really good. It doesn't taste anything like meat. (laughs) So, I mean, you know, and, and he recognizes he should probably cut out meat for any number of reasons, but... Like he doesn't think, like for me, I don't care what it tastes like. It doesn't, tasting like meat is not a plus for me because of, you know, I've had this for so long. But for him, you know, it's like, yeah, it doesn't taste like meat to him. Yeah, so the, I like Beyond Meat a lot just because it doesn't taste like meat. Um, But uh, the Impossible Burgers I can't stand because it does taste like meat. Impossible Burgers have um, a special like sort of um, iron supplement that's in there from like the Amazon or something, which is the part that sort of makes it bleed. And so it has that flavor to it. Also beet juice. Yeah, yeah beet juice. But it, but it also has this thing which like tastes like hemoglobin, which I don't like. And so because it really does taste like meat. And that's why the Impossible Burger has made such big strides at restaurants, whereas the Beyond Meat thing, I think, has made bigger strides in grocery stores. But so I like Beyond Meat, but I don't like um, the Impossible Burger. Yeah, I think for now, there's a constituency that doesn't really care if it tastes like meat. Most of the early adopters are vegetarians to begin with or vegans to begin with. So like the, you know, they don't really care about whether you call it a meat product or not. What happens is when you try to scale this to 10% or 20% or 50% of Americans or to get it on the shelf of every supermarket, you do need to start calling it meat and you probably need to start recreating it to make it a very meat-like experience. Um, personally, I don't care. I 
either way. I love the Impossible Burger. I don't really care if it's supposed to be like meat. It has a unique taste that mirrors meat. I, I can make all sorts of good sandwiches with it. But I also like stuff like, you know, grain meatloafs and grain sausages. And I'm not really buying them because they mimic meat. They don't taste anything like meat. They just happen to come in a package shaped like a sausage or meatloaf. But they just taste so damn good. Um, so anyway, that's kind of that's that's how I think about my buying behavior. But ultimately, looping this back around to the messaging, I think it's going to be important for when you get it to the ma- the masses and people want a meat oriented product. Well, okay, let's wrap up and do our Valentine's Day themed free electrons. So when you pull that impossible burger out of the fridge and you carve it into a bloody beet juice stained heart and give it to your significant other, what story are you going to be talking about? What has captured your obsession or attention? Jigger, you go first. Well, so, you know, funny enough, I've been really captured by geothermal heat pumps, and so I've been thinking a lot about sort of, you know, how we move away from active air conditioning and cooling and moving to more of the sort of slow and steady eddy heat pump effort. And I've been looking at it a lot. Um, it's been around for years, but it just does seem like the technology has gotten to the point now where people, you know, are think it actually meets consumers' needs. Well, uh, I should say that listeners may notice we have a new sponsor that is in the geothermal heating space. And that has nothing to do with your, your choice to, of obsession. Uh, why are you obsessed? What, what, what's, what's all of a sudden got you thinking about this more? Well, you know, I lived in Vermont for my first job out of college, and it always bothered me to no end that there are like, you know, over a million households in the Northeast that continue to burn fuel oil. And that no one cares, right? In all of these upstate places and all these bastions of environmentalism and climate change and Vermont has a conference every year, they don't, they're not working at speed and scale to convert all those people away from fuel oil, right? And for a long time, I thought, well, it's because it's so expensive to connect them to natural gas and that's what it is or whatever it is. But, but it's actually, you know, I think possible to convert everybody away from fuel oil. And, you know, like the emissions, um, that come from fuel oil are shortening the lives of the people who live in those homes. And so it'd be great to actually help those people out and not subject them to those health you know, issues. Catherine, what are you crushing on? What are you obsessing over? I'm crushing on trying to be warm. Honestly, um, I hate February. It's my birthday month, and I've always hated it. It's the shortest month. and it's Wait, so not warm as a human being, like warm physically. Physically warm. Wait. When is your birthday? Is it next week? It's a week? week from Valentine's Day, and which means that people try to combine it. Bad idea. Two separate holidays in the <laughs> shortest month. But so I thought of two very warm places. One is Hawaii and one is Puerto Rico, both of which have done some interesting things recently. So last week in Hawaii, the Public Utility Commission staff released a report on their performance-based rates and you know trying to make sure that consumer experiences enhance the utilities are judged based on performance and still able to make a living, that society has better outcomes. Um, you know, they're moving over to 100% renewable. So that is a really interesting report. I suggest people Google that. And you still have a chance to interject comments to, you know, 
be part of that process. The other place where there's a stakeholder process that people have to know about and be involved in is in Puerto Rico. So PREPA, the utility there, um, offered their first, their draft integrated resource plan that offers eight mini grids that are connected with 2.2 gigawatts of solar, um, a gigawatt of storage. Now, a lot of this is utility owned because they want to own it. They also include liquid natural gas terminals. So uh, they are closing down their coal plants, but they're doing some other fossil fuel. But this is another place where people need to start providing comments if you haven't already in Hawaii and Puerto Rico, and maybe you can take a field trip along the way. Important stuff, but only you, Catherine Hamilton, when asked what you're obsessing over would pick you only you would pick a stakeholder process <laughs> my favorite well i am obsessing over trash folks not just recycling i mentioned that i go and stare into the recycling bins of my neighbors and froth and seethe and wander around mumbling to myself about how nobody can recycle properly but I'm also concerned about trash. I live here in East Boston. We're kind of close to the airport. There's a lot of industrial development around us. And we got a trash problem. People just do not know how to take care of their trash well. The city hasn't done a great job of educating people. Um, it's, it's, it's one of the more horrendous problems I've seen. And there are a bunch of us here in the neighborhood that are doing a little beautification effort, trying to figure out where to pull money in, where to, how to fig- force developers to um, put more money into to trash cleanup and greening up the neighborhood and planting more trees and so forth. So we're at the very early stages, but I wanted to reach out to the savvy tens of thousands of people out there who know probably more about this than I do and have experience with cleaning up neighborhoods. So if you have ever lived in a neighborhood where you have had a serious trash problem and you've done something about it, will you send me a message on Twitter? Uh, and just, yeah, just go ahead and send me a message. My DMs are open and I would love to know about any plans that I can integrate into our beautification efforts. I don't know, Catherine and Jigger, have you ever dealt with this problem? Is this something you can speak to? The county I live in, Arlington County, is amazing. And, um, you know, our neighbors are pretty well trained. They do a lot of education of consumers. They attach flyers to the recycle bins. We have three different huge bins. One is for trash. One is for mixed recyclables. And the other is for yard waste. So they pick up every single week, all three of those. They come through three different times. And hazardous material waste is really easy. I took a whole bunch of old paint cans last weekend to the hazard material waste site. So like Arlington County is really good about this, but public education to me seems pretty critical. Well, that's it, folks. Thanks for your ideas for what to discuss in the Green New Deal. I know we probably disappointed a lot of you because we got so many comments on what to cover. We just couldn't cover everything. And you know us. We start to get into our debates and, and, and you know, we, we, we get into a deep conversation. So I hope that we'll be able to continue to address some of the issues that you raised in future episodes. Hit us all up on Twitter with your comments and your questions and your show ideas. Uh, the Energy Gang is there. Jigger, Catherine, and myself are all there. And give us a rating and review anywhere you get your podcast, particularly Apple Podcasts, and send this link on to someone you know and love. If you want them to be more educated about the energy transition, then this is the show to send them. 
With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Energy Gang, produced by Green Tech Media and Postscript Audio. We'll catch you next time.